Well, good morning, Wayside. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas and New Year's Eve and New Year's Day and really took some time just to reflect on the beauty of the incarnation of our Lord and just to look back at the blessings of, of this past year. And as we go into 2018, I thought I'd start off this morning by just talking, taking a, a second to stop and look at where we are in our study in the Gospel of Luke. So we began our series in Luke all the way back in September, and we're going to be in Luke for most of 2018, if not all of 2018. So we got a lot of time in Luke, okay? It's going to be a good deal. You can get to know Luke real well. And that's great because Luke's a marvelous gospel. It's probably the most comprehensive of the four gospels in looking at the life of Christ. I mean, it is a study in the life of our Savior. And it's just a powerful, powerful study. And Luke was a book written to show, for the readers to know that Jesus Christ is the perfect man. He's the second Adam. And that through him, through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, salvation is now available to all. It's universal in scope. It's available to the male and the female, to the Jew and the Greek, to the rich and the poor. It's available to all who will believe in his name. And Luke begins his gospel by going even before the birth of Jesus and looking at the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah. And then we get to the birth narrative in chapter 2 of Jesus. And then that kind of goes into the adolescent story of Jesus, the only gospel that shows Jesus as an adolescent. And then we have the section that's really the preparation of ministry for Jesus that looks at his baptism and then the temptation. And then starting in chapter 4, we have Jesus' kind of local ministry. So chapters 4 through 9, Jesus is in, ministering in Galilee, an area near his hometown of Nazareth where he's teaching and healing and creating a following of him. And that's where we pick up our story. And if you, if you think back to last week in chapter 6, we talked about a couple of, of engagements Jesus had on the Sabbath with the Pharisees where they had butted heads. And Jesus says, hey, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I have authority over the Sabbath. I'm the rightful interpreter of the Sabbath. But the winds are starting to change, so to speak. And so as we come to our text this morning in chapter 6, verse 12, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to respond to the conflict that he just had by doing two things. He's going to go off, he's going to ascend up a mountain to spend a night in fervent prayer. And then he's going to descend from the mountain, and he's going to officially select his 12 apostles from his many followers. So he's going up the mountain to pray, and he's coming down the mountain to pick his ministry leadership team, to pick the apostles. Starting in verse 12, it says this. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Now, it's been my experience that there's two times in particular, or at least these are two of the main times that we go to the Lord in fervent prayer. Those, two, those times where God just almost forces us to our knees, or when we are facing opposition, or when we have to make a big decision. 
So when we are facing conflict or opposition from somebody or something, or when we need to take time and make a critical decision, those are two times where we are just really pushed to our knees in prayer and dependence upon God. And both of these things are present in verse 12 when Jesus ascends the mountain. He is feeling the rising opposition of the Pharisees and the Jewish leadership. Okay, the shine is kind of off Jesus to a certain extent. The honeymoon is over. And things are changing, and, things are, and people are starting to turn against him, especially the leadership. And then on top of that, it's time for him to pick his guys. It's time for him to really select the 12 individuals who are going to be the leaders of his movement. And so, he prays. Now, as, as a quick aside, whenever we read in the scriptures that, that Jesus is praying to God... I know that a lot of people have this question like that bubbles up in their mind, that comes out of their mind right here, and the caption is, wait a second. If Jesus is God, what does it mean when Jesus prays to God? Like, like is, he, is he talking to himself? And, and I don't want to get sidetracked here, but I want to unpack this question a little bit because it also connects to our prayer life, and I think you're going to see that in a second. You see, we as Christians are monotheist. We believe in one God. Very similar to our, to our cousins, the, the Muslims or, or the Jews, but we are distinct in our monotheism because we are Trinitarian. We believe that our one God eternally exists as three divine persons, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's this belief that really sets Christianity apart from every religion in the world. And so I want you to think about this because that means that when Jesus was born, and follow me here, this is good stuff. When Jesus was born, though he had never assumed flesh until that moment, he had always been God the Son. So though he had never been born, he, has, he had always existed as the eternal son of God. We call that the pre-existent Christ. And as the eternal son of God, he, has, he had been in relationship to the Father and the Spirit from before time and space began. And, and this pops up in the scripture sometimes. You have to kind of look for it a little bit, but it's everywhere, especially in the Gospel of John. Because you'll come across a text like this in, in chapter 17. As Jesus is praying, he says, I glorified you, the Father, here on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I was with you before that. Before all of this. And so when it comes to the incarnation of our Lord, it's not that things have changed relationally within the Trinity, for they have always related as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's not that anything has changed in terms of Jesus' deity, because he has always been the eternal Son of God. What has changed is that the eternal Son of God has put on humanity. That's the change. That's the big difference. 
And so when Jesus is on earth and he's praying to the Father, he's not doing anything that hasn't been done for all eternity. This is the ultimate holy huddle of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and the Godhead. And this is where you and I come in. Because it is this holy huddle that we are invited into when we pray. And really, it's this holy huddle we are invited into to a certain extent when we experience redemption. And, and listen, this is not some like new age idea where Loudermilk's just gone off the reservation. Okay, this is, this is in the scriptures. The scriptures teach that if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, that you have been baptized by the Spirit into Christ Jesus. That you are in Christ that you have been born again as a child of God, and that a down payment of that salvation is a deposit of none other than the Holy Spirit who resides in us, who indwells us, and who seals us for all eternity. Second Peter 1, even Peter even says that you are now partakers of the divine nature. Because the Spirit of God resides in us. And so when we pray... We are praying by the Spirit who is in us, through the Son who reconciled us by his life, death, and resurrection to the Father who created us. So prayer is deeply Trinitarian. It's deeply Trinitarian. And it's a, it's a magnificent thing. Because prayer is an invitation from our creator to commune with him by means which, of which he has provided for us, namely himself. So I think this sets prayer in a different light. And it reminds us of the power of what is going on when we pray to God. You may say, well, I don't feel it. Well, tr- there's more to truth than what you can feel. There's more to truth than what you can feel. And we believe in our faith more than that which we can explain. There is a mystery to it. But that's what the scriptures teach is going on when we pray. And so here in verse 12, we see the Son of God heading up a mountain to pray by himself to the Father in a time of opposition and decision making. And look, this is not something Jesus did every night, he's fully human. He needs to sleep. I mean, sometimes in the Loudermilk household, one of our sayings is, hey, the most spiritual thing you can do sometimes is to take a nap. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to lay your head on the pillow. But there are times, and there were times in the life of Jesus where he had to put things to the side and dedicate extended time in prayer to the Father. And if he did it, I think that there's something there for us as well. Because we live in a day and age where this type of prayer is exceedingly difficult. It's kind of ironic, but in some ways, we've never had more free time. We've never had more time to pray, and at the same time, been more unable to pray. Because we are, we are averse to silence. We are uncomfortable with solitude. We are honestly 
in general, petrified of boredom. And we are chronically busy, overstimulated, and distracted. And this makes prayer very difficult. And I'm, I'm not coming down on you. I'm guilty of this as well. I struggle to sit still. I'm a doer. I'm a goer. I'm a promoter. I'm, hey, let's, let's roll. Let's make this thing happen. But I feel like the Lord is teaching me that I need to spend less time on my feet running around and more time on my knees before him. The great Corey Tinboom writes, is prayer your spare tire or your steering wheel? Is prayer your spare tire or is it your steering wheel? This was a question that really kind of hit home for me in a, in a big way this past fall when, uh, when Roger and I went to East Africa. And so I, I ended up making my way over to Rwanda in, in Kigali, where we have a tremendous partner there called African New Life Ministries, a, a partner we've had for over 20 years, a, a ministry that was helped to launch by this very congregation, by this church. And so I was there at New Life Bible Church in Kigali, which is kind of the home base of the ministry. And as I'm sitting there one morning, I hear construction going on right next to me. Because right next door of the church, the, the ministry was building a hospital called the Dream Medical Center to serve the people of Rwanda with the love of Christ. And here's the thing. This, this Dream Medical Center, this was no small endeavor. This was $6.5 million project. And so I'm sitting there in church, and Pastor Charles, who's our missionary and the pastor of the church there, he gets up and he says, Brothers and sisters, we're, we're a little short on the hospital. We are lacking... Roughly six, seven hundred thousand dollars. And we really need that money. And we really need it this year. And so I'm sitting in there in the in the sanctuary, I'm like, whoa. That's a lot of money in America. Much less in Rwanda. But then my mind starts racing to, okay, okay, no problem. We got this. What can I do to help? How can I fix this? And meanwhile, while all this is going on in my head, Pastor Charles is kind of smiling up there on the stage. And then he looks out at the congregation and he says, friends, God can do this, but we must pray. We must pray. And everyone in the church there starts praying that God would show up in such a marvelous way and do that which they could not do. I mean, many of these people have hardly a nickel to their name, but they're saying, but God is going to provide. And I remember being, being pretty convicted of how their response was, pretty, was, was more biblical than mine. I mean, I have a seminary degree from a fine theological institution. But when the challenge came, I responded with human strategy. And their response was prayerful expectancy. And I think their response was more pleasing than mine that day. And we need strategic planning. We need promotion. We need vision casting. We need large donors. We need all of that stuff. All that stuff's important. But where do we go to first? Where do we go to first? And this past Saturday, actually two weeks ago, 
December 23rd, I got an email from Alan Hotchkiss, who's the executive director of African New Life Ministries. And the title of the email was this, Great Christmas News. And this is what the email said. Friends, we got a great Christmas gift yesterday at African New Life. Someone committed to cover the remaining startup expenses for the Dream Medical Center. It's done. Praise God. Next time you visit Rwanda, a new hospital will be in operation. Merry Christmas, Alan. And so when we take a a wayside medical team to Rwanda this next October, one of the things they're going to see is this hospital. The Dream Medical Center, where faith and science meet to bring healing. A hospital with 65 patient beds. The first private birth rooms in Rwanda. The first 3D ultrasound in Rwanda. The first epidurals in Rwanda. Can I get an amen? Expecting to serve 16,000 patients a year and expected to contribute $4.5 million to the local economy every single year. Now, it took a generous donor to make this happen. Really multiple generous donors. But I would imagine those generous gifts, the genesis of those generous gifts was that they were birthed out of fervent prayer by a people who believe that God can do big things. Is prayer your steering wheel or is it your spare tire? And just because we are blessed with plenty does not make prayer less powerful or essential And we must never forget that as we go about our life. So Jesus heads off to pray in response to the opposition of the Pharisees and in preparation of choosing his 12 apostles. I mean, these are the 12 guys who are going to lead the movement. These are the 12 guys who are going to be his his mouthpiece when he is gone. And this is what it says in verse 13. When day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. So he comes down the mountain. He calls his disciples together. And there's more than 12. There's a a big following of disciples at this point in time. But from that, that big group, he calls out 12 to be this unique group called apostles. And this brings about the question of, well, what is the difference between a disciple and an apostle? Well, the word disciple really just means learner. The Greek word used there means he's a learner. So in this context, a disciple is a follower of Christ. Really, the New Testament uses the disciple as anybody who has believed upon Christ as Lord. We are disciples of Christ. Now, an apostle is a little bit different. The Greek word for apostle literally means one who is sent. So the apostles are the sent ones. And an apostle was sent with the authority of the one who sent them. They had the message and the credibility 
of the one who sent them out. And so while all of the apostles were disciples, only 12 of the disciples ultimately became apostles. The ones on whom Christ would build his church as Ephesians 2 and 4 articulates. And the one thing I want you to notice is that Jesus hand-picked these guys. He's been up praying all night. He's, this is not a you, any, meeny, miny, mo. okay? He has thought about who he is going to choose, and that includes Judas. Judas was not a mistake. Judas was not, he didn't just somehow slip through the cracks. It's like, oh man, I just, I didn't see enough character references on Judas when I hired him. No. It's just an example of a sovereign God choosing people to do what they please as he accomplishes what he wills. People do what they please as he accomplishes what he wills. And Judas is part of that. And so in verses 14 through 16, we have the names of the different apostles. We have Simon, whom he also named Peter. Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew. And Matthew and Thomas. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called a zealot. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So there are four times in the New Testament where the apostles are listed. And in each listing, Peter comes first, and in each listing, Judas comes last, except in the book of Acts where he's not listed at all because he's dead. So that's one thing that's consistent. Another thing is that a number of the disciples have two names, which can throw you off sometimes, Levi and Matthew, Simon and Peter, Bartholomew and Nathaniel, Thomas and Didymus. So a lot of these guys have multiple names that they go by. And as we think about the 12 apostles, I just want to give maybe three observations about these guys that I think are pretty applicable to us, even though the distance that separates us. Number one, these are not extraordinary men. They're not. They're not the upper crust of society. They're not the highly educated. They're not the seminary trained. They're not the pillars of Judaism in that day and age. They are normal guys. And they were not chosen because of their talent. They are chosen because God chose them. It's really as simple as that. They are chosen because God chose them. And these ordinary people anointed for the purpose and pleasure of an extraordinary God. And this is a good thing to remember because I think one of the lies that the enemy attacks us with in the church is that you have to be, you have to be great to be used. Like you've got to have this crazy skill, this this talent that's so obvious to everybody to be used by God. Otherwise, you're just like a normal Joe, a normal Sally. But that's not true. My, my professor, Dr. Hannah, always likes to say that there are no great people, just a great God. There's no great people, just a great God. And so God takes this ragtag, kind of motley crew, and he 
uses them to lead the greatest movement the world has ever seen. We take it for granted. This is so far-fetched, it's not even funny. I mean, he pick, it's like him picking a basketball team, right? And he just selected a bunch of short, slow guys who can't dribble, and they fight during practice all the time. And he looks at me and says, hey, lace them up, boys. We're going all the way. We're going all the way. I mean, it, it, it's incredible, incredible. But this is how God loves to operate. Pastor Stephen's leading uh, the men right now through the book of 1 Corinthians, this marvelous letter by Paul. And this is what Paul says in chapter 1 that speaks to this. Paul writes, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then I love Deuteronomy 6, where Moses is is telling the, the people of Israel why they're special. He's cluing them in. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 6. He says, for you are a holy people, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 7, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were in number, that more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, you're not that special, but God chose you. You see, God does not need extraordinary people to accomplish his mission. Rather, he uses ordinary people who place their life in the hands of an extraordinary God. And he does that which, in essence, in reality, he doesn't even need us to do in the first place. He could do it all without us, but he chooses to use us. That being said, he does not choose to use us all the same way. Not everyone parts the Red Sea. Moses did. Not everyone stepped out of the boat to walk towards Jesus on the water. Peter did. Not everyone's going to have the ministry of a Billy Graham. Not everyone's going to make the impact of a Martin Luther King Jr. We don't always choose the context of our ministry or our life. That's up to God. And there's so much that we don't control. We don't control where we're born. We don't control when we are born. There's so much that we don't 
control. And there are countless of gifted individuals who have existed throughout time and throughout the church and even today around the world who have seen very little fruit from their life. Been ministering in a hard place and never seen a conversion. Gifted minister or gifted individual who God took early and they died. And we don't know why. But we don't choose the context. And a lack of fruitfulness is not necessarily a lack of faithfulness. I think that Isaiah was faithful. But he struggled. And they sawed him in half. I think Jeremiah was faithful. But there's a reason they call him the weeping prophet. Sometimes God just has a different plan for us. And then there's other times where he just, for whatever reason, heaps blessing upon people. I mean, I was, I was reading recently about, about Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers in the 1800s. This guy, no degree, no formal training, starts pastoring a church before he's 20, and right around 22 or so, he's preaching to over 10,000 on a Sunday. They made 50,000 copies of every single one of his sermons. 50,000 copies of his Sunday sermon, and they would pass them out all throughout London. And people just ate it up. They had to build bigger churches. He told his church, I need you to stay home because there's so many unbelievers that want to come and hear me preach. I mean, the guy would just cough, and people would be like, I believe. (laughs) Why? Because God chose to use him that way. I have no idea. Because he's a God of grace. And now as men do what they please, God does what he wills. And our job is not to be significant. Our job is to be faithful. And what we find is there's nothing as significant than God's people serving him with a willingness to be insignificant. And the power that's in that. All the while realizing there is no such thing as insignificance for the child of God. There is no such thing as an insignificant life when placed in the capable hands of our creator. The 12 apostles were ordinary men. Who God used to do extraordinary things. And thus they partook in an extraordinary life, not because of what they did, but because of who they knew while they did it. You don't have to be extraordinary to be used, because God is extraordinary. Secondly, what the, what the apostles do, and really Jesus does this, but the apostles reemphasize this, is they redefine success. They really redefine success. Because as I mentioned, these guys are not successful in so many of the ways that the world might look at success. They're not rich. They're not elites. They're not Ivy League. They are hated. They all die. They're all killed, except John. I mean, just listen to how many of their lives ended. And we don't know all of this for sure. Much of this is from tradition and church history, but this is a sample of what is believed happened to the apostles. 
We know James, the brother of John, his death is recorded in Acts 12. Herod Agrippa has him stabbed. He's the first apostle to go. Peter, according to Eusebius, you've probably heard before that Peter was to be crucified, and he asked if he could be crucified head downward, upside down, because he did not want to die in the same way that his Savior died. He did not feel himself worthy. Peter's, Andrew, Peter's brother Andrew was martyred six years later after preaching in, in what is now Eastern Europe, and he was crucified for his faith. Thomas, it is believed, went to India, where he was thrust with spears, tormented with hot plates, and burned alive. Philip evangelized in modern-day Turkey, where he was tortured and crucified. Matthew, is believed, was beheaded at Nadavar in modern-day Ethiopia. Nathaniel or Bartholomew is believed was flayed and then crucified in India. James the Lesser is believed that he was thrust off the top of the temple and then upon hitting the ground, he was beaten with clubs. Simon the Zealot traveled preaching the gospel before meeting his martyrdom in modern day Syria. Judas Thaddeus, he preached the risen Christ in the midst of pagan priests in Mesopotamia before being killed. Paul is beheaded by Nero. Matthias, the replacement disciple, is martyred. And John, the beloved disciple, is exiled to Patmos, where he dies in exile. Are these men successful? I think we would say yes, but then the question comes, well, well, what's the criteria? By what standard are we measuring their success? And I would say the only standard that truly matters They took what opportunities they had, what giftings they had, what time they had, and what influence they had, and they placed them in the capable hands of their creator. And they are not successful because they're famous. And they're not successful because their stories are told on stained glass windows. They're successful because they were faithful. And they took everything they had, and they put her in the offering plate until they took their last breath. And the call on their life is really no different than the call of our life. And that doesn't mean that God has the same plan for us, but it's the same expectation. It's the same invitation to take everything you are and give it to him and allow him to do with it what he will. And so the the apostles remind us that God can take ordinary to extraordinary. That that God can redefine success and move it from prestige to faithfulness. And then lastly, through the apostles, we were reminded that we are to be sent ones. Because as I mentioned, the word apostle means to be sent. These are the sent ones. And, And notice when I talked about their lives, notice where they ended up. Many of them left and died far from home. And the ones who stayed, stayed with a purpose for leading the church at the home base, for ministering in their own community. And while the apostles as a group of people have died off, and and that office is no longer, we no longer have apostles, we are still being sent. We are still sent ones. Even in this small speck of the world known as Wayside Chapel. We, we base our missions philosophy really off Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. We are witnesses to the gospel. We are servants of a new covenant. We are partakers of a divine nature. We are ambassadors for Christ near and far. And Christ told us this from the beginning. And even in John 17, that same prayer, praying to the Father, Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And he goes on, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for all those who believe in me through the word. We are not apostles, but we are sent ones. Sent by God to our families, sent by God to our communities, sent by God to our workplaces, sent by God to our schools. You are a sent one wherever you go. And for many, where they go is here. It's local, and that's fantastic. Others are sent abroad, or they're sent out to be missionaries, to to take the gospel of Jesus Christ cross-culturally around the world that others may know the grace of Christ. And we also seek to be sent ones here at Wayside through our short-term trips. As we send out people from our body to partner with our partners doing ministry around the world. And if you, if you look in your bulletin this morning, you saw a, a, a card. And that in, that in that bulletin and on that card, it shows our trips coming up from Wayside for the year of 2018. And we're, we're incredibly excited. We had a, a, over 150 people last year from Wayside go out on these short-term trips. And we, we want to even increase that. And there's going to be a number of individuals after the service who will be out in the foyer representing different trips that can answer any questions you have. On your card, you see the dates, you see where we're going, you see the type of mission that will be taking place, and there are great opportunities to go, both near, whether it's with the high school uh, ministry team to D.C. or the middle school to Mississippi, we go to Arizona and minister to Navajo children right off the reservation, been there for eight years, putting on a camp for them. It's a beautiful ministry. We're going to Peru to partner with the blocks who you met, with the Yanesha people. We're going to the Czech Republic to minister to high school students in the Czech Republic where there's 1% Christian. We're sending a medical team to Rwanda to minister to the various communities within African New Life. There are just great opportunities. I know some people are asking, where's Guatemala? We've already lined up Guatemala for spring break 2019, so get that one on your calendar as well. We are sent to be witnesses and to declare the power of the gospel. And and when you think of the 12 apostles, they were so insignificant. Because the Roman Empire is huge, and these are 12 nobodies born at the ends of the earth. And yet from them, God led the greatest movement that would ultimately overtake the empire and even outlast the splendor of Rome. Rome was temporary, but the church is eternal. And 12 country bumpkins from Israel ended up leading a charge that took down 
the entire and overtook the entire thing. And yet any power found in the apostles was due to their proximity to the Savior. And the same is true for us. He is the vine, we are the branches. We can do nothing apart from him. But in him, we who are ordinary, friends, we can live the extraordinary. We who spend so much time looking for significance can find that very thing we long for in the midst of faithfulness. And even those who never leave their little speck of the world can live as sent ones who declare the power of the gospel. And it is this power of the gospel that we are reminded of when we come together as God's people and celebrate communion. Because when I said, one of the things I said is that apostle means sent one. There's the sent ones. But one of the beautiful things about God is God does not ask us to do anything that he did not do himself. Because the ultimate sent one is our Lord Jesus. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent, or that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The mission of God that he has given us started in the very sending nature of himself. As the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And he was born in no man's land, Israel. But we know that he is the Savior of the world. And so God took on flesh and he lived the perfect life that we could not live, dying on the cross that we deserve, rising from the dead on the third day, conquering death, conquering sin, and inviting us into, into communion with him by faith. And the Bible says that when you place your faith in him, this amazing thing happens. It's a cosmic transaction that you may not even feel, but it's more real than anything you know. Where Christ's righteousness is given to us by faith, And our sin is nailed to him on the cross, past, present, future. It is finished. If you are anybody, if you are someone here this morning and you have not taken that step of faith, you've been trying to, hey, I just got to go to church more, I just got to be a better person, I got to be nice, I got to do all these good things so I can be right with God. I pray that you would see that he has done the work for you and you could never do it anyways. Only the God man could. And so he did. He died and rose again. And I pray that the Spirit of God would move in you and that you would receive that free gift of salvation. If you are someone who has taken that step, we're about to come together and celebrate communion where we as God's people look back at what Jesus did on the cross. We look forward to his coming again and we give him thanks. So take this time to be still, to go before the Lord and confess anything you need to confess Ask him to grow you to be more like himself. And when the men come and pass out the elements, please hold on to them. And we will take them together um, as the the church. And And communion is open to anyone who's taken that step of faith. In Luke chapter two, when you have the birth of Christ, it's pretty amazing. You can kind of fly over it. But it says that Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus. If you know your Roman history, Caesar Augustus was the most powerful emperor there ever was. More powerful than his uncle Julius. And it was during his reign that the Savior of the world was born. 
far away from the palace of Rome, born in a manger. And the disciples so wanted a military king, you know. They wanted a political ruler. They wanted someone to come and overthrow the Romans because they felt their biggest need was freedom politically. But Jesus came to meet a much greater need, their need of forgiveness. Because their sin had separated them from God and the only thing that could make it right was God taking, his, taking their place. So that's why John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he says, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He gave his life so that we might have life. The body of Christ, eat this in remembrance of him. See, the Jews, they didn't need to be told that sin was, had consequences. You look at the Old Testament, and they were offering sacrifices again and again and again at the temple. I mean, blood was being poured out day and night. But the sacrifices of those animals did not cure the root of their sin problem. There were minimum payments on a credit card until the Lamb of God came who shed his blood. And as Peter tells us, he died to justify the ungodly and bring us to God. He shed his blood for you and for me. The blood of Christ, drink this in remembrance of him. Would you pray with me? Father, what can we say? Words do not do you justice. So all we can do is praise you and thank you. We thank you for life. Because the only reason that we can even thank you is because, one, you you have given us breath. You have given us life. And two, you have given us knowledge of who you are that we might praise you. And both are completely by grace. God, we so want to be extraordinary for you. But you are extraordinary. God, would you teach us just to place our life in the palm of your hand that you may do what you will with us knowing that you are good, that you are faithful, and that in you is where life is found. God, would you send us out as people who recognize that ordinary to extraordinary happens because of you. Would you send us out to be people who seek faithfulness above all else? And would you send us out wherever we are that we might be witnesses to the gospel, ambassadors of Christ, servants of a new covenant, as partakers of the divine nature, which you did for us by grace. God, thank you for being you. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for the gift of life. May we repay you with what we have by placing our life in your hands. And we pray this in the name 
of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.